You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I am joined with Dr. Daniela Shuseed. Hey, Daniela. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's awesome. This uh, uh, We're talking elephants today, so our listeners, our, our fans know they are my babies. They are just, since I was a little kid, elephants have just captured my imagination like no other animal. I have to say that's not a bad animal to uh, to start off with at the early age. I cannot necessarily well i was really into dumbo as a kid that's for sure um definitely one of those kids that always loved to be outside like playing in the dirt climbing trees and man i remember gosh i was in elementary school with uh jessica fondre come to think of it and would take like uh tadpoles like out of the lake behind her house and put them in cups and watch them and try to make them grow and you know so always like into things like that but um i actually wasn't Elephants weren't like my first interest when I was thinking mm-hmm. about going into research, to be honest. Please don't, um, hold it against me since, no, since you knew from an early age. Uh, mm-hmm. but I got, it was Lion King that really captured my interest when I was a kid. And so I was really into lions. I was into Africa and I was like, Oh man, lions are so cool. Lions are so cool. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, I ended up having an opportunity to go to Tanzania and, and work on uh, some human elephant conflict research. And I was like, okay, well, it's not lions. All right. That kind of, it's not ideal, but it gets me to the place where there are elephants. So, mm-hmm. okay, you know, we could, we could work with that. And um, one of the days, so one of the things we did where we brought villagers into the national park, into Raha National Park, and let them see the other side of animals because all their experiences were these negative experiences, right? There's a lot of human and uh, wildlife conflict. Mm-hmm. And one day there's a family of elephants crossing a river and, oh man, there's like 20 or 30 elephants. We're sitting there for probably like 30 minutes. I was just watching them. And that's when I fell in love. That's That was the moment that I was like, oh my gosh, I want to know everything about elephants. Just the expressions that I felt like I saw on their faces and the interactions they were having with each other. I wanted to learn about their sociality. I wanted to learn like kind of like, you know, like what makes them tick. And I was just captivated by them. They're so charismatic. And I know I'm not alone in feeling this, 
But I was just right then and there, I fell in love and I feel like they're an onion. Every time I peel back one layer, there's another new layer that I want to learn about them. And, and now here we are and keep on learning about elephants and get a, a, you know, be so lucky doing that. So it's pretty sweet. You are. I know. I know. And we got so much to talk about because. And I'm so excited that you're also such a big (laughs) elephant head. I am. I'm a nerd. (laughs) I'm such a nerd. I love them. I love them. And, you know, let people know that you were doing research in Africa and then this pandemic hit. And so you had to come home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so really quickly, your affiliation Mm -hmm. is Indiana University, correct? So you're, you're doing research out of there. That's accurate. Postdoctorate. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I have, um, a postdoctoral fellowship with the Morris Animal Mm -hmm. Foundation and I'm actually in the School of Public Health, um, at, at Indiana University, which is not where people necessarily expect someone studying the elephants to be. But I've had a very circuitous journey getting to, uh, where I'm at in my career and, I uh, very much support you don't have to go A to B to C to D, um, but to, you know, experience life and the opportunities that you're presented with. And so when I uh, finished undergrad, so I went to the University of Florida for undergrad and I studied biochemistry and I studied biochemistry not because I love biochemistry. I actually do not. You know, um, but it was a, a physical science that I felt like would get me to my end game. And at the time I was like, end game is either a working for the government, like the FBI or, or the state department, something in, in that line or doing, doing research. And at the time, again, I thought it was more of this lion route, um, not elephants, but again, similar, similar idea, just, you know, different species. And when I uh, graduated, I wasn't quite ready to join the real world. And I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And so I went to Israel. And while I was in Israel, uh, I studied Hebrew. I played basketball. And then I I got my master's. Mm -hmm. And there's only so many programs that were offered in English. At the time, I wasn't uh, fluent in Hebrew to study in Hebrew. And so the, the master's was in government and I figured, okay, well, this will get me towards, you know, the government route. So I guess this is the route um, I'm going in. And actually, I had a conditional job offer with the State Department. And while I was waiting for my security clearance, it was taking a really long time. And I was like, okay, I need to start trying to to sort out my next my next move just in case this doesn't pan out. And I knew a faculty member at University of Alabama in Birmingham. And... She, she's in the, uh, she was, she's not currently there anymore, but she was in the nutrition science department. And so I reached out to her and I said, you know, listen, like I'm thinking about getting my PhD. What does that look like? What should I be doing with my, my CV? And she kind of started giving me, you know, like ideas and, and things to look into. And she, she asked me to send her my CV, my, you know, my test scores and this, that or whatever. And she kept encouraging me to apply. And I was like, listen, I don't, I don't, study nutrition sciences, you know, I don't, (laughs) that's not my background. And, Mm -hmm. um, but she kept kind of talking about it. And at the same time, I started looking at different ecology programs in the U S and I started to try to see what their requirements are and who's doing what and how it kind of worked. And I started emailing folks and I got a lot of emails back, like, listen, 
you have zero background in ecology. Again, I was biochemistry. Mm -hmm. I was biochemistry with one credit away from minoring in Arabic. So I had not <laughs> like a, like a lick of anything yes. close to ecology apart from, uh -huh. you know, like bio one and two, maybe, you know? Um, and so I got a lot of, you know, maybe you want to do some, some other classes or this and that. And, you know, I tried to get more experience. I worked on a sea turtle study at a FAU. I, I was, um, I'm from South Florida. So it's Florida Atlantic University. So I like just, I don't even remember how I found her. She was a PhD student there. I was like, Hey, do you need anybody to like, you know, help you collect data or whatever it may be? I probably didn't even use those words, but I was just trying to get more experience. And everyone from the ecology side is just like, yeah, you're not going to get into this program. You have zero ecology background. Mm -hmm. um, but I was um, a very determined and persistent person. <laughs> and um, I think that's that's an important thing for like young people to remember uh, is to also to be flexible. I think that's the other really huge thing. And so I reached back out to this woman at UAB. And I was also into exercise and like working out and stuff. So I was like, all right, you know, what about like exercise and nutrition? And she's like, yeah, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of research about, mm -hmm. you know, nutrition as it pertains to, as it pertains to performance. So, um, I started thinking about it and th at this time, so I applied and at this time is when, uh, I was in Tanzania and, and I fell in love with elephants. And so that was in, uh, the spring of, oh man, hold on. I got to do math real quick. That was in the spring <laughs> of 20, 2012. That sounds right. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And then I was accepted into the UAB program uh, starting in the fall of 2012. And in that first week I was like, oh man, like I like working out, but I'm not passionate about working out. And mm -hmm. to get a PhD, you have to do a lot of reading. You have to do a lot of writing mm -hmm. and you better enjoy what you're reading about. Uh, if not, you're going to have a miserable few years ahead of you. And so at that point I was like, okay, I'm passionate about elephants. I want to study elephants. This is what I've been wanting to do. I'm not really into nutrition sciences. How can I make nutrition sciences and elephants match up? And so then it was just reaching out to folks and going through the literature. And, you know, I reached out to uh, one a uh, very well-known elephant biologist. And then he pointed me in the direction of Janine Brown, who you and I have uh, discussed, mm -hmm. and I call her my mm -hmm. elephant mentor. Mm -hmm. And um, I reached out to her and I said, hey, this is who I am. You know, it looks like uh, there may be a relationship between how much fat elephants have in reproduction. So uh, some elephants in zoos have some reproductive problems and from a nutrition science background or in the department I was in, you know, there's a lot of research that's with obesity and, and related comorbidities. So I was like, maybe this is something. And, you know, I just kind of asked like, okay, well, what's known and what's not known. And so she gave me like this laundry list and she was up front. She was like, listen, I get emails all the time. I'm probably not yeah. going to remember you. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that's okay. That's okay. And in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, this woman's totally going to remember me. I'm going to mail her. Uh, thank you card, handwritten thank card, which I did. Like she's totally gonna remember me. She did not remember me, by the way. So it's quite all right if that happens. You know, just keep <laughs> keep you know going, chugging along. Yep, yep. And yep. so ultimately, um, it wasn't originally you know well received in my department, and there's just a lot of worry. Who's gonna train you? There's nobody here studying elephants. And so somehow I convinced Janine 
um, to be a collaborator on this study. And now, like seven years later, I work with her on like pretty much all my work. Uh, she's a collaborator. Mm-hmm. She turned into much, much more than even a mentor at this point. But it's just like persistence and this is what I want to do and and how do I get the pieces to make this work in my situation. And at the time and, you know, even towards the end of my PhD, I was always really concerned, like, is it is this going to be an issue for me moving forward career wise? Because it's not a traditional background. And, you know, there's times where, you know, there's maybe terminology I'm not, you know, accustomed to or maybe a perspective or a paradigm. But on the flip side, I now have a very unique perspective as I approach my research with elephants that many people from an ecology background do not have. And I found it to be actually very beneficial, uh, not just for my career, but also in, in terms of how I'm thinking about things, in terms of grant writing, like connections, networking. I think networking is massively important, particularly as you navigate through your PhD and, and you try to find, say, a postdoc and things like that. Just talking to people and, and finding out what to do or who to do it with or who might uh, be best to help you um, kind of move forward. And, and that's kind of what I did. And I'm, I'm still kind of, you know, obviously still doing. And mm-hmm. and now now here we are. And yeah. um in Bloomington, no, that's, Indiana, still in the yeah. School of Public Health, but working for me. Yeah. No, that's that, that's amazing because that was one of the, the major questions I wanted to ask you was how you got to where you are. And that is a phenomenal, crazy tale. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, but yeah, it's, there's a lot it, of stops on the way. <laughs> it, it is. But I mean, it, it's you know, especially for, you know, we get emails all the time. And uh, I just have one recently. His name's Court. He's an engineering student. And he wants to get into ecology through engineering. So, you know, I sat down and emailed him what I thought and my experience from mentoring students. You know, I think, you you know, be determined, persistent, you know, also uh, reach out to as many people as you can. Mm-hmm, you know, absolutely. so, yeah. So for these, because we have a ton of students that, that listen to the podcast. So, and they want to get involved with research either certain species or ecology. So that that's an amazing story, Danielle. That is awesome. That is awesome. Thank you. I <laughs> want to just say for those students who are listening, I think being flexible is super important. And when I started my PhD, uh, I was, you know, the, I wanted a certain thing in my head, right? And I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of young people have this certain idea. I want to study this animal in this context, in this country, under these circumstances, right? And this is a field with very limited opportunities, limited funding, and you just really need to get your foot in the door. So if that means you study frogs when really you want to be studying bears, you should mm-hmm. take that opportunity and learn those skills because you could ultimately translate those skills to two bears down the road once you have that. But getting your foot in the door, I think, is first and foremost should be what um, kids are really focusing on, not is this the perfect animal in the perfect mm-hmm. environment. And, mm-hmm. you know, I studied elephants, both Asian and Africans, with zoos. But when I started, I was really gung-ho, like, my dream is to be in the field, not not necessarily working with zoos. And I would not trade my experience for any other. I have remarkable contacts now with the with the zoos and I continue to work with zoos because there's such a a unique balance 
by working both with zoos and in the wild. You, there's certain things you can do in zoos you just can't do in the wild and certain things that obviously you can study in the wild that you can't do with zoos. And I think they're very complementary. And zoos also provide a lot of funding for research. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people mm-hmm. are aware of this or not, um, but there are a lot of different mechanisms that you can tap into. And by having personal connections with a lot of these zoos, they now know the type of research and type of science I do that I do quality science. They know what type of uh, output they're going to get from me, right? So when I finish working with zoos, they all get a report of all the information I learned about not just the study, but also where their elephants landed in that study and, and the information I learned. So it's not just me taking from them, right? I'm taking their time. I'm taking their keeper's time and and their elephant's time. But now I'm also giving back so they learn more about their animals as well, which, you know, helps them. Uh, So again, that's just like one one thing that people should consider when they're they're looking at programs or, or different research opportunities. It's okay if it doesn't look exactly how you want it to look. Because at the end of the day, it's probably going to end up being better. And, and that's how I feel my experience has been. You know, it's just been so much better than I ever anticipated it could possibly be when I started, you know, back in 2012. No, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely not a race. It's, um, and mm-hmm. you learn different things, different techniques. Now, really quickly, I know, mm-hmm. you know, since you are with Indiana University, you just want to give a quick disclaimer you know, as we get into the, the oh right, the, uh, <laughs> the podcast. Yeah, okay, I told you okay. I was going to forget. See, I, yeah. I told you before we started recording, listen, I need to say this disclaimer. I always forget. And here I did. I forgot. Yes. I just want to say these uh, opinions I'm expressing are mine of their own, not necessarily reflect that of Indiana University. All right. Thank there you. we go. Okay. Yes, for reminding no problem. Me. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I love listening to you. Oh, so I was man. like, I'm not going to interrupt her. I'm definitely not going to interrupt you. You're on a roll. I told you. I told you before mm-hmm. we started. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We got it Thank in there. You. We got it in there. We'll, 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 we'll point them to the, the time in the podcast, but yeah, cause Perfect. I want to kind of, and, and I know, you know, we, we kind of have a list of questions, but on this topic of That's zoos, right. I just, I just want to say, you know, listening to you and from my own experience, because the, the, the limited research I did with elephants, you know, our, our ultimate goal is, you know, to help the Noah's Ark program preserving gametes of all these species in case they mm-hmm. go extinct in the wild, like the Northern white rhino. Right. Great example. People that we both know are working on that project today, you know, or maybe not today, mm-hmm. today, but this month or this year, they're working on <laughs> right, pre- right, right. preserving, you know, preserving gametes from the the male that passed away a couple of years ago, or I think it was last year or the year before. And then the two females that are left, you know, our goal when I was doing elephant research was to, find ways to better preserve male gametes. And if it wasn't for elephants under human care, there's no way you could get that research done. And therefore, yeah. And therefore you could never preserve these gametes. Therefore, if they went extinct in the wild, they're probably done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, zoos, you know, accredited zoos, they do such an important service. And and I'm just jumping in here real quick. Another example is rhinos, the Sumatran rhinos that they're trying to bring. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, That's a good example. I think it's a great example. So anyways, really quickly on your PhD work, what was some of the Mm -hmm. data you were collecting? What'd you learn? Yeah. So uh, what I was really interested in looking at was the relationship between how much fat elephants had and how that fat associated with different uh, health outcomes as well as reproduction. And so up until uh, the work we did, 
there, there had been some studies, but they all relied on body condition score. And so just real quick, cause I don't know if people are familiar with the body condition score. Um, basically it's a visual assessment for elephants. It's done with domestic livestock, dogs, cats, uh, some, you know, if a dog, you could actually touch it, but with elephants, this is all visual, but basically you're assessing the animal's condition based on key skeletal regions. So often for the elephant, that's the backbone, the hip, and the ribs. And depending on how well you can see those skeletal regions, the elephant's given a score. So a higher score, you see less of those skeletal regions and implies higher condition, which many people would then also call as being obese. I'm not one of those people. I just want to say that to be clear. And then a lower score is less condition. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to emphasize that I, I wouldn't say that's obesity is obesity is this social category that we've created to describe higher levels of adiposity that are related, particularly it was based off of mortality data in humans, right? And so the data aren't there for elephants. We don't know, even if say an elephant in a zoo has greater adiposity, we don't know if that's uh, a good thing, a bad thing, or doesn't actually really have an impact yet, right? There's just not enough data there. But I was interested in quantifying the body composition of African and Asian elephants, and then seeing how does that relate to how much they're walking? How does that relate to uh, different markers about their metabolic health, say insulin mm -hmm. and glucose, their inflammation, uh, as well as if the elephant, the female elephant had a normal ovarian cycle or not. So that's what a lot of my work did. And so we were, uh, relied on a lot of blood samples, well, six blood samples per elephant. And that was uh, necessary for how we were quantifying body composition. So we, we gave the elephant something to drink that lets us pretty much tag the water. And there's a relationship between how much water uh, a mammal has and how much fat-free mass they have. So that's mainly their skeletal muscle. And so ultimately, we're able to to determine how much fat they have using this method. And then we look at these other markers in the serum as well. So we did that. We put activity trackers on them. So they wore bracelets uh, for a couple of days so we could see how much they're walking. And so the, those are really, really the, the data we collected from those guys. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, all those things, it's, you know, are things you can't do you know, with, with wild elephants for sure. No, 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 no. And that, yeah. you know, that's just another good example of us understanding their physiology better. So hundred you know, percent. Yeah. Yeah. And we're yeah. actually, um, we're I'm doing a project right now with the AZA zoos and we're doing facial recognition for elephants. And I'm really excited about this project. I think it's amazing. It's probably, I nerd out about this project probably more than any project I'm working on. And you know, AI is really, and I hope it continues to creep into conservation work. I think it could be, have like amazing effects, mm -hmm. but the amount of photos that we're taking of these elephants is just not even feasible to do with wild elephants. We're taking literally thousands of photos per elephant of different angles with different backgrounds to train these algorithms. And you just can't get that type of data in the wild. But the mm -hmm. idea is we're going to use these models to then bring to the wild. So then when you're in the wild and you just take a couple photos of the elephant, you could add them to our database. The algorithm still works because we trained it with these zoo elephants. And so that's just another way where we're working with zoos to improve uh, different conservation tools without having or not even having the ability to do that in the wild. And, and then similarly, you could actually use it when you go to the zoo as well and use this 
uh, facial recognition technology. So now you can have this virtual interaction with the elephants you're seeing and learning something about them and, and things like that. So it's really cool. It's, um, Oh man, it just has so many applications. I, I can't wait yes. for us to, to get to the end with it. And, um, mm-hmm. I do, uh, want to just thank our, our funding source, uh, Microsoft AI for Earth, since it is, you know, it was Earth Day yesterday. But, uh, yeah, that's also another a great example that I wanted to throw out and, and, um, kind of, kind of again, props to the zoos in that, in that sense. Right. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about it in some of our podcasts, but artificial intelligence, camera traps, things out in the wild that they're, they're programming into computers and you get data quick, quicker than humans categorizing things like that. I know they, they use it with tigers. Uh, they, we were, Mm -hmm. God, we were doing, I helped advise a, uh, a scientist a few years ago that was looking at some stuff with chinchillas. It's applicable to multiple species. So you're doing it with elephants, which is amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And, but with the camera traps, what also is useful with this is, you know, you put up camera traps and you get so much data, so many photos, most of which isn't of your species of interest. Right. And so Mm -hmm. AI can totally cut down on the amount of human hours that are required to go through every single one of those photos to find the ones of interest. And so Definitely AI, I think, can be very transformative in the conservation spectrum. No, it is. It is. It's, it's, it's so interesting. And maybe that's something in the future we should get an expert on that, that's doing some of this. You should. Like, totally. Or bring 100%. you back. Or, or when you get your data, we'll bring you back in and we can dork out on I'll it. have to bring my computer scientist with me yeah. because I only know <laughs> the, the broad strokes of how it works right. on that side. <laughs> right. I know. It's got to be so complex. So, I try. It's over my head. <laughs> Can you talk about, you know, particularly the research you're doing and we haven't even mentioned them yet, but really looking at forest elephants. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just for a a quick reminder, or maybe you can, since you're actually working with them, you know, it was just what, a couple of years ago that they really said, yes, this is its own species, right? Um, ish. There's still debate. Still debate. There's still debate. There's still debate. (laughs) Yes. Um, so there's been a lot of, recent developments, particularly on the genetic front, showing that forest elephants are genetically very distinct from savanna elephants and diverged about 2.6 uh, million years ago. And there's talk about how they're as similar, like the similarities between savanna and forest elephants are on the same level as Asian elephants with woolly mammoths, right? So there's mm-hmm. a lot of evidence pointing to that there should be two distinct species. They're also morphologically different. So they're much smaller than savanna elephants. They've got these rounder ears and these straighter tusks. And just in case for those folks listening who, who aren't, um, exactly sure what we're talking about. Uh, the savannah elephants are probably the African elephant you're thinking of if you're familiar with African elephants and they live on the savannas and grasslands in Eastern and Southern Africa. All forest elephants, as their name suggests, live in the forests of Central Africa. And uh, although there's a lot of, you know, morphological differences and obviously these genetic differences, there's still a lot of hesitancy to classify them as two distinct species. So all the major players in terms of conservation governmental agencies, IUCN, ESA, CITES, they're still 
with the elephant, African elephants are just one species. And a lot of this hesitancy is around the hybrids. So forest elephants and savanna elephants can interbreed and then they have viable offspring. So their offspring, we call them hybrids and hybrids can have babies. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of hesitancy with separating them because if forest elephants and savanna elephants become their own distinct species, then the hybrids are left kind of out in the out in the rain and they aren't covered by any legal protection. And so the IUCN has put out a call for more data. And so they want more data to determine one, how many right now we don't know how many hybrids there are out there. And so they want more data on that front and they just want more data uh, before they can make a decision. And so actually we have um, uh, I have a collaboration with uh, some folks out at University of Oregon, and they do genetics uh, mm-hmm. on non-invasive samples, so using fecal samples. And I do a lot of hormone work, again, non-invasively using fecal samples. And we've teamed up. And so there's a priority site that IUCN has determined in Uganda. It's on the western border. It's the Albertine Rift. It's right uh, between Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's thought that this is one of the largest hybrid zones out there. And so what we're doing, and we should have started doing, uh, except for COVID-19, yeah. Um, yeah, story of most people's mm-hmm. lives right now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the, the purpose of the study is we're collecting paired uh, samples. So every time we collect a fecal sample, we're running genetics on it and we're running hormone analyses on it. So for genetics, we will determine if it's a hybrid, a savanna, or forest elephant. We could also know individual if we wanted and hormones were creating a health profile based off of a few different uh, biomarkers we can measure in the feces. And the idea is first to, to determine the distribution of hybrids in this zone. So we're collecting all across uh, this priority region. So what's the distribution of the hybrids is one. Two, mm-hmm. we're going to look at the health profiles of the hybrids and then compare it to the health profiles of the parental species, of each of the parental species in the same environment. So they all have the same like, environmental conditions and how do their health profiles match or don't match between between them. And then the third is we're actually looking at this mismatched ecological context. And so what I mean by that is the more and more um, we reshape the natural environment. So we're converting a mm-hmm. lot of natural habitat into, into human landscape, right? Either through logging or mm-hmm. agriculture for whatever means we're compressing these natural environments for elephants that require a lot of space. And so we're compressing both forest and savannas to, to take, um, you know, refuge, let's say that's a, you know, maybe extreme, but to both live in the same habitat And particularly maybe not in the habitat they evolved for, right? So forest elephants have evolved to live in the forest. Savannah elephants have evolved to live in the savannas. And now maybe they're living in a different ecological context. So how do forest elephants living in savannas match compared to forest elephants living in forests? And similarly, how do savannah elephants living in forests match to savannah elephants living Mm -hmm. in savannas? And really excited about this project 
I think, uh, and we expect that these data will be really useful in determining and helping shape conservation policy, including do or should African elephants be categorized as two distinct species and really determine, do we need species specific, landscape specific conservation planning moving forward for forest and savanna elephants? So, uh, I think, I think this could have some really big impacts on the African species. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of a, a hard situation in a way because there's a lot less forest elephants than savanna elephants. And so by mm-hmm. not having them as a separate species, they're really not getting the same type of protection that you would if it was, if it, they were their own. Uh, so it's, it's quite a, quite a debate still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, oh gosh, I have so many questions. So Hopefully I have <laughs> really so many quick. answers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really yeah. quick. Let's, I'm going to switch species on you just really quick because I want—I just want to ask this: mm-hmm. Did you go see mountain gorillas while you were in Uganda? Were you even near there? <laughs> All right, so um, I'm going to give you a couple a couple things. So yeah. uh, where uh, I was at in Uganda for my research, it's in Ki- I, I'm primarily out of Kibali National Park, mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. chimps, not gorillas. But I did do uh, a gorilla trek. Who maybe like almost 10 years ago, uh, Mm -hmm. in Rwanda, the volcano national park, but where I just came back from, I I was in Republic of Congo and studying the forest elephants there at the Mbeli Bay. So the Bay is just a a natural clearing. And so it's really uh, beneficial when studying forest elephants because it is very hard. We don't know much about forest elephants, or right. definitely not when you compare them to savanna. And a part of that's because they're just cryptic and the forest is so dense that a lot of the strategies we use with savanna elephants, we just can't do with forest elephants. It's much harder to, to collar them and you can't just hop into a truck and follow different herds. Obviously, visually, you can't see them. And so uh, the by the elephants come, we think, you know, for the minerals there, maybe also for some social reasons. And so when they come, we can see them. And then uh, for the work I was doing, I then leave a platform and I walk out into the forest and, and then follow their trail to find <laughs> their, you're the, their You're supposed their to live in the dream. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm not gonna lie. It's pretty sweet. Oh, it's pretty sweet, it's, Chris. But oh. there, there's gorillas like every day. Gorillas come to that by constantly, constantly. Probably oh, more than the elephants. I feel like probably because oh. I was waiting for the elephants. And I didn't care if the gorilla showed up or not. And I'm just like right. waiting for specific elephants to show up because we were trying to collect repeated samples from the same individuals. And mm-hmm. so I'm hoping for like certain elephants to come, and then not only just come, but to poop in a place that I could find it. Right, right. And uh, so I was just like, like, you know, but it's, it's pretty sweet. It's pretty sweet. It's not a bad lifestyle. I'll tell you that. No, no, you're living the dream. That's like, oh my goodness. Uh, I mean the, and, and Angie loves poop because poop tells you so much about the animal. Like it just tells you so much about the animal. Like it just some grass kind of like clumped together. Yeah, I know. I know. Or carnivore poops, I think pretty nasty too. So <laughs> yes. agreed. Okay. Agreed. Right. Okay. So forest elephants, I think, you know, okay. I really want to get your take since you're there on the ground mm-hmm. in Africa. Uh, Cause we talked about them. We revisited them uh, last year. They're not doing very well, are they? 
like no, a, as a subspecies well or species. Yeah. So yeah. what's kind of the, what's going on with them out there? Yeah. So I think on a big scale perspective, uh, one, they're not as well known as Savannah elephants, right? So from just an international, uh, conservation push, uh, both from a scientific, but also war generally, just like the general public from like the lay, the lay public, they don't know about them as much. And so there's not as much emphasis on them just because, uh, you know, I, there's most people and maybe some people listening right now di- didn't even realize there were, uh, there was this animal called the forest elephant, right? So I think that's, that's one issue. Also in terms of that visibility is you don't really have ecotourism in these countries. And, and it's one of, it's much harder, right? You can't just throw 10 people in a truck and go on a safari and see zebra, giraffe, rhino, right? You don't have mm-hmm. that luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is very detrimental. One again, from just knowing about forest elephants, but also ecotourism is just massive for the economy. And, you know, it's sad, but when you have, or you're living in poverty, you can turn to poaching as a way to, mm-hmm. you know, as a means of economic survival. And so if, if you don't have that there, that's, you know, I think really serves as a deterrent for, for a lot of poaching and actually something that I think is of concern right now with COVID-19 and moving forward um, that I think I'd be remiss not to, to mention is that there could be a lot of fallout, not just poaching of say rhinos and mm-hmm. elephants, but, you know, antelope for bushmeat just because, you know, these countries rely so much on ecotourism and that's not going to happen anytime soon. And I'm not talking about like the next couple of months. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, at least a year or two yeah, out from yeah, now. Next so couple of years. Yeah. Some, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's also an issue. And then we're having a lot of logging, uh, occurring. And when you log, you're not just, you know, you don't just have habitat, you know, destruction. So right now we've had, about 30% reduction in some of the habitats in Central Africa over the past uh, decade or so. But when you, when you log, you also open up the forest now to poachers. So you make it much easier for the poachers to enter the forest and to go unnoticed when they do poach. So I think there's a few different factors kind of all intertwined that are leading to their, to their uh, sharp decline in numbers. But yeah, we've had between 60 and 80% in certain populations across Central Africa in the past uh, decade, uh, mm-hmm. 60, 80% decline, I should say, in their population over the last the last decade or so. So yeah, we really need to, you know, not just you and I talking about it, but get people excited about forest elephants, get people aware of forest elephants, and then start creating programs that also help a lot of these uh, areas uh, economically. I think poverty and corruption are really big players in the poaching game. And so if we could start tackling some of those, that could be, that could be big game changers. No, it, it is. And we've, oh geez, we've done a, a flurry of podcasts recently with uh, global conservation forces. One, they're, they're anti-poaching units, mm-hmm. you know, really amazing work that they're doing. That began just a few years ago and is really making an impact, you know, Kruger, South Africa, and then also mm-hmm. doing stuff like Ant- the Pangolin program. So we just did uh, Bonobos. Yeah. And one of the things I talked about was the DRC and the conflict there. So you going into 
a quote unquote war zone or or whatever. I oh, mean, you're on the ground. I should so- clarify real quick. Yeah. I was in the Republic of Congo, so right to the okay. west of DRC. So actually, I haven't seen bonobos in the wild because uh, they are in DRC. I'm in Congo and. Uh, Republic of Congo. So right. I don't have really the same um, political strife, I guess, is occurring mm-hmm. there. This mm-hmm. is DRC. It's pretty politically stable in Congo. So it, it gets okay, it gets yeah. brought up to me, yeah, quite a bit. And actually, when I first told my parents <laughs> about uh, me going, I think for like a good month, every few days, they'd send me a text with a news article about DRC and the things that yes. are happening. And they're like, really, yeah. do you need to be going there? And every time I have to be like, wrong Congo, wrong Congo. It's quite all right. <laughs> I'm not That's going right. there. Right. But right. uh, when COVID and everything was happening, it was a very quick decision. I think actually within five hours or so, the decision was made that I, I needed to return to the States. Mm-hmm. And where the field site is, it's very isolated. So to get there from the closest um, village, it's like a 45, 50 minute drive plus another 45 minute like canoe ride, if mm-hmm. you will. Wow. Um, so it's, I literally see 14 other people every day and our, uh, guides and the field assistants, they are on 30 day contracts. So you come in for 30 days and then you, you know, you're out for about nine days and you come in for 30 days for the, the research assistants and for the field guides, they're on 30 days and then off 30 days. So you pretty much see the same 14 people for a month and then mm-hmm. half of those people again the next month and then like some new folks again for another month. Um, and so for a while, I was just like, okay, this, this isn't really an issue for me. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. There, there's right, no way this right, is getting right. here. But you know, there's a lot of concern about the lack of healthcare infrastructure and if something did occur and in the flip side being so isolated does take a long time. So it takes two days to get from the field site to Brazzaville, which is the capital of Congo and where the international airport is. And in those two days, I went through like six different flights because everything was getting canceled. And finally, I mean, I went to the U.S. Embassy, I was talking to them and Maybe a day later, they're like, well, can you get to Kinshasa? So that's in DRC. They're like, well, we could get you an expedited visa if you want to go to DRC. And then you could get like a flight out of DRC somewhere. And and I was talking with one of my colleagues and we're like, we do not want to get stuck in DRC. If the borders close and we're in DRC waiting for a flight, that's not a place you really want to be. And so we're like, no, 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 we're we're scratching that game plan. No, so, yeah. gosh. Yeah, I'm glad you got out safely. Like, ugh. oh, and the Republic. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. So the Republic of Congo, that's northwest, right, of the DRC. Um, My yeah, geography's so right. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's, they share the eastern border of, uh, Republic of Congo is the western border of, of DRC. Right. And right, then okay. to the north, is the Central African Republic. And then right. to the the west of Republic of Congo, you have, uh, make sure I remember, Cameroon up there and, and Gabon mm. towards the south. And that's mm-hmm. kind of like their cluster. And that's also kind of like the stronghold for forest elephants. So the majority of forest elephants are found in those five countries, in Gabon, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Congo, and DRC. Um, that's kind of where most of them are now. And, um, right, right. it's That's where most of the, uh, a lot of the research is happening. Right. Uh, and so I was, different I'm, areas. 
just researching that, like that, the whole part of that world, because, you know, we can only read articles or whatever we, you know, scientific mm-hmm. stuff that's, that's put out there. And so Gabon was really the one that was like the star in conservation. Is that, is that true from your experience or what your knowledge is of there? Yeah. So, um, I know that Gabon had pretty much like the stronghold on, on forest elephants and probably had, mm-hmm. um, some of the, the biggest, I think they had around 35,000 in, in the mid, like around 2014, 2015. But they're actually one of the countries, they just, there's a paper put out by a group from there not too long ago showing that they've had a decline in their population somewhere between 78 and 81% um, over wow. the last decade. So now they have around like 6,000, 6,500. Again, these are rough estimates. So the way we're estimating mm-hmm. forest elephant populations are actually based off of dung sampling. Um, so this is, there's a large room for error in these numbers. You just can't, you know, some of the survey weight, like surveying tools that you use with savanna elephants, you just can't do with forest elephants because it is so, so dense and you can't see them. Uh, so mm-hmm. that everything's based off of dunk, counting dung piles. But this was one of the, the more scaring, scary outcomes is the fact that this is supposed to be one of those areas in one of those field sites that um, you'd think there'd be some, you know, or was expected that it should be safe from poaching. And this mm-hmm. decline in their numbers are all really related to poaching. And a lot of it, though, is actually um, cross country. So a lot of it coming from Cameroon and where you have, a lo- you know, a lot of instability. And, and so it was very eye opening in terms of the future for forest elephants and what this may mean for the future of forest mm-hmm. elephants and not a good way at all. Yeah. And is it still, I mean, ivory, right? Like we, we, we talked before yeah. we started recording, we talked a little bit about that. So mainly ivory. Yeah. Mainly ivory, mainly ivory. Okay. And that's still yeah. going to China and Vietnam and Asia. Yeah. I know there was a big, yeah. East Asia. Um, you know, I know there was a paper that came out last year in terms of Savannah elephants. Poaching has gone down. I think the, the max mortality rate in 2011, which was what was perceived as the peak in poaching, was around 10%. And in 2017, it was less than 4% for savanna elephants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of this international pressure that's going out there, it appears, is helping. You know, we think that's, you know, helping uh, stop or curb the poaching that's happening. But, you know, there's still people out there who want it. And, you know, we have to constantly remain vigilant and if it's not elephants you know there's probably going to be another species you know we have to talk about rhinos in that sentence but you know it's not just the these two megafauna that are very charismatic you know there's other other animals out there that you know will end up either for bushmeat or one reason or another and we have to find out find long-term solutions and um those aren't easy those aren't easy at all No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I mean, just like the pangolins and now with COVID-19 yeah. and yeah. trying to shut down the wildlife trafficking into China. I, I hope this has an impact on that. And, you know, we just leave them. Yeah, alone. me too. Yeah. But then, you know, you're but, reading all the stuff about the, like the bear bile and then you're, you know, you're just like, oh my t- gosh, if it's not one thing, it's something bone, else. You, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh man. Just... <laughs> So you can't, I guess, you can't win. <laughs> I know. Well, that's why we're here. You know, that's why we're here to fight. That's and, right. That's right. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. People like you out in the field and, and we'll give you a voice where you can come here and tell everybody because it's fascinating stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
can you just tell our listeners a, a mm-hmm. day in the life of Dr. Shuseed, you know, out <laughs> in the middle of, you know, the uh, Congo or Uganda, you know, like what's your day like? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, each field site is really different and my days look very different depending on that. Uh, so it, in Kibali in Uganda, we, I, I don't see the elephants very often. Um, which, you know, it's kind of sad when, when that's what you're studying and you want to see them, you know, sometimes just like, come right, on, right. give me an elephant, right? Um, mm-hmm, and you're mm-hmm. like, they're, they're so big. How do, how do you not see them? I'm telling you, they blend in tremendously and, the anatomy of an elephant's foot makes it really nice for them to, to walk pretty quietly. So, um, in, in Kibali, it's a lot of, uh, walking, looking for dung. And I have a lot of, um, networking. So villagers and different researchers there have my phone number and give me a heads up if and when they come across elephants. And that kind of helps us start to, to figure out where we need to, we need to, um, put our efforts. So it's a, it's a bit different. It's a lot of um, hoping and searching. And I have a, a research team out there that once uh, their shelter in place restrictions are lifted, they'll able to continue collecting fecal samples. In Congo, it was uh, very different, particularly because, like, as I mentioned, the bye. So mm-hmm. our campsite is a 40 minute walk from the bye. So, you know, you wake up, I, I wake up at um, 5.36 actually, because uh, we leave mm-hmm. at six as soon as it's light enough to, to walk through the forest. Again, it's a, a danger. You're on foot and you're sharing this, this forest with elephants that can be dangerous, with gorillas that can be dangerous, with chimps that can be dangerous, uh, forest buffalo, right? So there's a lot of dangers and it's just you as your protection, right? You're not in a vehicle. So uh, we head out, you know, at six. I have two uh, field guides with me uh, and there's other researchers there as well. It's not just myself, but me and two field guides. Uh, you don't you don't talk when you're walking in the forest. This is the same in, in Uganda. We don't really talk. Uh, we're listening. So we're, we're listening for sounds of elephants or, or gorillas and, and buffalo and things like that. And so you get to the the buy and there's a platform that's I don't know maybe oh gosh I'm bad with height maybe 30 mm-hmm. meters up okay. and it's pretty high there's like three levels and we mm-hmm. have like a little mini kitchen setup because we have breakfast and lunch there and um, you know you for people who are interested in field work you should know a lot of patience is involved it's not always yeah. high flying action <laughs> um, so. For there, you know, I'm, I'm waiting, uh, for elephants and, um, uh, we identify them. I shouldn't say we, I do not identify them. Uh, the research assistants identify them for me. It took me an hour and a half, uh, to identify one elephant because we use their ear vein patterns. And so you, you look at their ear vein patterns and match it with other elephants. Um, there's over 500 known elephants that visit this by. And these research assistants, man, they just look through the binoculars and they're like, this is so-and-so. I'm like, what? Oh my gosh, this is crazy. (laughs) This is insane. And so when I started training on it, literally an hour and a half, I'm staring at two, I'm staring at my, my photo that of the elephant of interest and then scrolling through the photos in our database to try to match it up. And oh man, 
anyway, so yeah, then uh, me and my guys, we head out into the forest and it's um, very exhilarating. I won't uh, lie. There's definitely adrenaline rushes. You, mm-hmm, I love mm-hmm. it when you don't see the elephants, but you hear the elephants. It's probably one of my favorite things. When you hear the elephant smelling you and like sniffing you in and you know that elephant knows you're there and so now you know they're there because you just heard them but you don't see each other oh my gosh for me that's one of the coolest uh experiences for sure um but then we're you know my guides are like private eyes of the forest like the way they pick up on these subtleties and being able to tell if it's a fresh track or not a fresh track and seeing the mud on the leaves about 10 feet above us because the elephant passed through and the mud on the back, you know, transferred to the leaves. You're just like, oh, my gosh, wow. how did you notice that? Um, wow. and how can you tell that this little vegetation that's squished down means that they were just here versus, you know, yesterday? And so we use um, a lot of elephant signs and and then um, they also – uh, the scent of smell. So we're, you know, they, I know what elephant poop smells like, right? Like I've been mm-hmm, around mm-hmm, a lot of mm-hmm. elephant poop. Mm-hmm. These guys smell the elephant poop and we're like 50, 60 feet away. I have no idea. How, I'm like, I don't smell it. I don't smell it. And then they're just walking <laughs> through the forest towards the smell of the elephant poop. And then it's like, here it is. So there's oh, certain geez. trails that the males use preferentially and certain trails that the females use preferentially. And so, um, what we go where the elephants are pretty much. And so when we see elephants there and we identify them, we pretty much follow their trails to, until we find a, a fresh pile of, of poop. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I, I wear a fanny pack for all those who laugh. It's very convenient, uh, to keep your gloves and your collection supplies in there. And yeah, I collect my, my samples. We have a field freezer there. You come back to the camp like around, 4.30, 4.45, um, put my samples in the freezer. Uh, I take a bucket shower and then, y- yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, you do rough yeah. it. It is rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's no electricity there. There's no running mm-hmm. water there. Um, no cell reception, say, right? No cell reception, no. So there yep, is yep. typically internet for a few hours uh, in the day, as long as it's not thunderstorming. If it's thunderstorming, you can't. You can't have the Wi-Fi on, but it's actually been down for the past couple of weeks. So uh, they haven't been able to really communicate out um, using Wi-Fi, just uh, the GPS satellites, but satellite phones. So, yeah, it's super, super remote, super primitive in that sense. Uh, the food is very basic. You're eating pretty much the same thing every single day. Um, but, you know, it's also pretty, pretty magical and pretty pretty paradise in a way you know living and, the dream kind of gets you living the in the moment yeah, yeah. that's for sure living that's for dream. sure chris that's amazing I it's am. amazing thank you <laughs> so, so, thank you i, I want to ask i, I want to ask this yeah go ahead go ahead sorry no no no, no. go ahead i was gonna say i i've got to ask you what other animals have you seen so so far we've got gorillas uh obviously elephants you yeah mentioned chimpanzees yeah uh Buffalo, yeah. I hope not. I don't know. <laughs> They're pretty. Yeah, for, Oh, I've they? been chased by uh, a few mm. different forest forest buffalo. I think I ran my fastest away from them. Oh, um, came really cr- close to a green mamba <laughs> one oh. day without even realizing, <laughs> and I was being kind of cocky that day. I felt like I was really like in the groove, being really observant in the forest, and literally my my elbow was like an inch away from a green mamba. And then I was like, 
not super observant today, Daniela, are we? Oh, <laughs> um, oh gosh. Uh, we c- come across black cobra in the water while we're in the water. That was also pretty scary. Um, mm. Crocodiles. Uh, oh, really cool. What I thought was really cool um, were uh, red river hogs. Um, oh, yeah. We saw oh, yeah. some of those. Uh, yeah. We see blue uh, dikers quite a, quite frequently in the forest as well. Um, black and white colobus monkey are out there. Mm-hmm. Who else is out there? No um, copy? I'm trying to think. No, I think they just had one of their first sightings, um, I think, earlier this year, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we yeah. saw a track. We, we see some tracks, um, but there... There aren't, um, they're not a frequent, no. I think it was right. actually, um, if I remember, a really big deal now that I'm thinking about it. And right, it's probably right. maybe about, uh, I think it was really early in 2020 when uh, the Okabe came to the buy, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly now. Yeah. Any, any leopards um, so at all? Those. There are leopards there. I haven't yeah, seen I, any. I've seen their prints, okay. though, but they're there. Yeah, yeah they're I, there. That's that's the one Angie just, it's a joke now between her and I that every time she goes to Africa, she wants to see a leopard and she has n- never seen one. And I um, pretty much in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Laura, our, our friend, Laura, we, you and I were talking about, uh, mm-hmm. she went to that, that conference in yeah. before, you know, for the listeners, just uh, Daniela was at the same conference Angie went to last fall. And I guess Laura said the second they got off the airplane, it was like, they saw the leopard within like an hour. <laughs> she was like, like what? <laughs> yeah. You can't see the leopard. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's so, uh, it's like they know where you're at and they're just playing yeah. with you. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. it, it sounds like oh, it's just fascinating. Uh, so outside of collecting data there, I guess, mm-hmm. and, and being the researcher, cause I know, you know, especially when you're in the zone, you're like, oh, that's just everything you live for. Yeah. What are the other, <laughs> other things that you've learned, you know, about, Instead of just data, like what else have you learned oh. about being in that part of the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> so I think there's a few things that sometimes we get caught up in in our, our lives here that um, just being there kind of brings you back to, you know, as much like I was having this conversation today, actually, about I'm expected to be accessible 24 seven when I'm here. And, you know, we have mm-hmm. our cell phones and we're streaming stuff and internet and, and as great as internet is. And, and don't get me wrong. I love, I love internet. It's uh, very freeing actually not having internet 24 seven. Um, and you realize how much time you actually waste doing stupid yeah. things like on your computer, yep, on yep. your phone. And yep. so I, I do think actually it gives you a lot of time for, you know, like self-reflection in a way, but also mm-hmm. to kind of like embrace your present. Um, and so in, in Congo, the the major language, it's French. It's not English. I don't speak French. Um, mm-hmm. And so what's really fun and really awesome is actually just kind of uh, getting to know uh, the folks there. So we have research assistants there who are Congolese. And so, you know, after dinner, instead of, you know, maybe turning on Netflix or something, we hang out and, you know, they teach me um, 
I actually wasn't, I was learning Lingala. And so they, we would go through, you know, different things and, and stuff. I'd try to say my guides don't really speak English. They don't really speak French. They speak really Lingala. That's one of the reasons why um, I'm more interested in Lingala than French. And so we talk about, you know, and joke about things that I say so wrong. I'm awful with languages. And then I teach them things like with English. So you just start like joking around and, and you, you also have this cross-cultural experience where, you know, it's amazing how different, um, you know, it sounds really silly when you say that out loud, but it's amazing how different cultures are, right? Because mm-hmm. at the root of it, everybody's human and everyone needs the same basic, you know, things out of life and, and things like that. But at But then there's so many differences and it's just tremendous to be able to uh, go to so many different countries. And and we haven't even touched on this, but I have another study that's in Zambia and South Africa. And so Mm -hmm. every place is absolutely different and everybody, you know, wants to learn and you want to learn and and you're just open and and goofing around and you find a way to communicate. And the nights were some of the best, the best times when we were just like goofing around and laughing and, you know, it's teaching about like words you use on the radio, like 10 four or like go mm-hmm. for Daniela. Right. And then like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, we come up with like, you know, I end up saying a Lingala word the wrong way. And so then that becomes my joke name. And so on the radio, then they call me this, you know, like just having those <laughs> types of experiences. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're just like goofing yeah. around and, um, you know, and, and it's also, I think important to, to be, um, sensitive to the different cultures and also remember, um, you're, you're visiting. And so I'm always trying to be mindful of that and, and trying to get, uh, their perspective and also having me there as well. Um, but you just end up, yeah, having so many amazing experiences outside of the research. But I would also say again, flexibility, super important because something's going to go wrong if not everything's going to go wrong when you're in the field and when you're particularly I can't speak of other countries but when you're in developing countries where you have limited um, access and resources to things things are not happening fast right do not expect anything to to just be like snap your finger and there it is no not at all and expect that things are going to go sideways really fast in one way or another. And so you just have to roll with it. You have to be positive. I think having a positive attitude is also very important because you could really, you know, get upset or frustrated very easily in many circumstances. And so you just got to just remember like, it is what it is. This is what you control. This is what you can't control. What are my next steps? How can I make this work and start game planning it and, and just, you know, hashing it out. You also become, very skilled in many different things. I feel like I'm quasi electrician now. I mean, I've yeah, spliced yeah. and rewired things now. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone wants to hire me, but I'm pretty sure that's a CV line right there. Yes. You know, so you just, you just gotta be, you know, adaptable and positive and just kind of go with it. Cause you know, you never I'm know still- what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm still going back to the biochemistry undergrad <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> Wondering where she's going in life and (laughs) she's out in the middle of the Congo splicing cables. That's right. Let me tell you, I'd think you're lying if you told me that. If you came and visited 19-year-old Daniela, I'd think you're lying. And I'm pretty sure Uh, all my friends would be like, wait, this is the person who's getting a PhD? No, 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 no. That can't be right. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and she's chasing poop in the jungle. Like she's oh, that's literally what she's time. doing. Yes. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. Just how uh, happens, right? <laughs> I know. I know. I, you know what? I'm, we're definitely going to have you back on like when you come Love back to. after this. Yes, for sure. For sure. And you know, we're over an hour now, but oh, I, I've got a, a few more questions I have to ask okay. is Shoot. You know, from, okay. You said Savannah elephants poaching's down, you know, and, and they're yeah. still on a trajectory towards extinction. It, it, it's just a fact. Forest elephants, where do you think they're going in the next decade? Yeah. Um, okay, wait, I want to qualify my statement about savannah no. elephants poaching going down. Yes, for the general trend, right? Some populations mm-hmm. are doing better than others, though, right? So some mm-hmm. countries, mm-hmm. you have increases in populations. Like you mentioned Kruger. Kruger has probably too many elephants than they know what to do with right now. Um, yeah. And then you have places where populations are kind of status quo. And then you have some countries where they're, they're decreasing. So they kind of, you know, some populations are, are, are doing well and some aren't, uh, forest elephants. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm a pretty optimistic person, mm-hmm, like innately mm-hmm. and generally. And I like to mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. that things are going to go well for them. Not super super optimistic at the moment. So one of the aspects of my study actually in Congo, um, cause I don't think we actually ever talked about it is force elephant reproduction. I know you're right, right, you know, right. a repo guy. Um, so there was a study showing that the forest elephants in uh, central Africa Republic, one of the populations there started to have their first calves around 23 years of age. And to put this in context, Savannah elephants, and Asian elephants typically have their first calves around 11 or 14 years of age. So you're talking about wow. about a decade later in life yeah. that these elephants are starting to reproduce. They also may have a slightly longer um, period in between having calves, right? And so mm-hmm. right now we're using a lot of uh, data from savanna elephants to model forest elephant population trends, which if this... Um, observation of forest elephants having calves later in life is true for the rest of forest elephant populations, then we're really underestimating how long it would take for forest elephants to bounce back from poaching wow. if we got poaching under control, right? right, um, right. So one of the, the questions we we're trying to address was, is this unique to that one population or are other forest elephants um, in other areas also having their first calves later in life? And then we we're actually trying to, the whole reason I wanted to collect repeated samples from the same individuals is we we're trying to characterize their estrus cycle. We we're trying to see if mm. their estrus cycle was the same length as, as savannah and Asian elephants and just trying to get a better understanding of the factors that contribute to reproduction in forest elephants um, to help promote and, and kind of safeguard the things that we'd need uh, so that we are giving forest elephants their best shot at recovering from poaching. Um, so th- mm-hmm. that's a lot of data we don't know right now, and, and um, I think that's necessary and needed. Um, I, I'm not. I, I like to think that you know more people are gonna get on board with forest elephants, and hopefully we can find find ways to protect them. But that also, it's not just poaching, right? It's a, a lot of it is habitat protection, and and I think that's right. also with savanna elephants. I think the 
biggest issue isn't necessarily poaching. It's habitat destruction. You keep having these fragmented areas and soon you really have isolated communities that then you're having a breeding interbreeding potential as an issue. Right. And, and they, you know, you're just going to end up kind of closing off elephants as you have more and more roads and highways and things like that from migration routes and going, finding water during a drought here. And, you know, they'll end up just being a lot of issues. So I think we need to, to focus on, on habitat uh, protection. And for those young people out there who are really interested in conservation, I'd say a lot of it is in policy and, and not as much as I love my research. And, you know, I try to formulate it in ways that will inform conservation policy um, and help us learn about elephants in general. I think a lot of future work is needed at the human interface of it all. I think if we can right. sort out all the issues that are related to humans in terms of poverty and food insecurities and, um, you know, family planning is a big one. You know, some of the highest population growth are happening in, in Africa. Uganda right now is on mark to have the globally the highest population rate um, at a little over 3% a year. So we need to find ways to to help improve the lives of people in Africa, which ultimately I think will help improve uh, the lives of the wildlife, um, yeah. not just studying the elephants. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. amen. That's so true. It's such a complex conservation. So complex, it is. But, yeah. It's yeah, a great point. I, I guess my final question, because. <laughs> Sorry, my, my answer no, is sometimes long winded. I know oh, it. I know it. <laughs> I, I don't care. I could listen to you all day. I literally can listen to you all day. Thank so you. We're, I, I, I'm going to, going to have you back. I'm going to have you back. What love can we to. do? To I love to. Yeah. To help you or your research. You said Morris Animal Foundation is, you know, yeah. how do we, because as a researcher, you know, out there in the field and, and you're doing stuff that is, in my opinion, just so critical to the preservation of forest elephants and then also other species in there. And, you know, here I sit in the United States and it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> and, and we, we, and we get this all the time. Like, how do our listeners help? How could, what, what could, in your opinion, and I've really never asked this of anybody and I guess I should. What is the most impactful thing they could do to help you? We have listeners all over the world, you know, from Africa yeah. and Europe and, and everywhere. But, you know, what could they do today to help Central Africa, the forest elephant and all these other species? So it's going to sound, um, I'm not entirely sure how this is going to sound, but really uh, it's a lot of it is money related, right? All these mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. require money having, and especially right now, because as I mentioned Africa relies on so many of these countries rely on ecotourism and that's not happening. You have a lot of uncertainty around, I mean, I know what's happening here in the U S as well, but uh, jobs, right? So anti-poaching units require salaries and they require supplies. Um, the park rangers operating these parks, even though tourists aren't there, these parks still need the rangers to patrol and, and protect uh, from poachers and things like that. All these Things require require money, and so as unattractive and <laughs> as that sounds, yeah. no, no, I no. think yeah. finding an organization that you get behind or that 
you have a connection with, you know, even if it's five bucks, five bucks, you know, goes a long way. And, and I think, especially right now, particularly with coronavirus, um, I think more and more places that rely on, you know, people coming there, donations are really, really necessary and crucial right now. So, um, I think that's, that's huge. And and then I would say also being mindful of the things you buy and the products you buy and where they come from. So there's a lot of cool wood. I'm really into wood. There's a lot of cool wood that comes out of Congo and, um, they're actually really strict on the wood that leaves their country. But when you're buying paper products and you're buying, wood and things like that, making sure that it's um, FSC, it's coming from a sustainable source. And I think in general, that's really big for any like, you know, including like the Amazon rainforest and Asia and things like that. So be mindful of the products you're buying would be the other, the other thing right. uh, for sure. Awesome. But if you're interested yeah, in my research, yes. I'm sorry, I did not mean to interrupt you. No, no, please um, go. Go, go, go. <laughs> If you're interested in my research, so I did start because um, I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be in uh, in Africa for all of 2020 through January 2021, and uh, my research, most of it is in Congo, but again, I'm in in Kibali and and also uh, Zambia and South Africa. So the whole plan was I was having a YouTube channel people could follow along. Well, that mm-hmm. obviously is not how 2020 is shaping up to be. No, but. No. <laughs> As I sit in my friend's house here in Bloomington, I'm currently homeless. Um, but I still have my YouTube channel. I have some content uh, from when I was there and still I have some content to upload because my internet there's just too weak that most of the stuff I couldn't upload. So I'm still putting, putting up some videos. I'm then also kind of mixing in some fun quarantine uh, shenanigans. For example, if mm-hmm. anyone watched the TV show Nailed It, we have a nailed it competition. It's a baking show. Um, okay. we're going to have an episode on that. I know that is really off base right now, but, no, that's um, fine. <laughs> uh, they can check it out. It's on YouTube. It's called the elephantologist. Uh, you can follow me on any social media platform. It's my first initial last name. So D C H U S Y D D C C. Um, and then if you're interested in, in, you know, supporting my research, uh, we do have a fund here at IU specifically for elephant research. And so you can reach out to me um, and I can put you in touch with the person that you need to speak to about that. Awesome. Awesome. And I will put all these links in the show notes too. So people can just go there and, and oh, they'll have sweet. all there. Yeah. No. Oh, Daniela, this is, uh, <laughs> this is amazing. I just, uh, I just had so much dr- fun. Oh, I have a dream of just coming out there and, and following you around for a month and, and chasing elephants in, in the in the forest. I just uh, that's like my listen. Ultimate, I uh, don't know when bucket list. I'm returning, but you are more yes. than welcome to to come on out every time uh, I set a, a month where I think okay by this month I should be able to get back. I'm like mm-hmm. oh no, that's not realistic. So I'm hoping 2021, early 2021, okay. things okay. will be calm. Yeah. And okay. I could head back, but more than welcome to. Uh, oh, thank come. you, thank you. Um, yeah, you I, might uh, want to just bring some snacks. I will. Things I will. Plenty great. of snacks. <laughs> that's fine. I don't care. I'll eat leaves. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. pretty much. I mean, that's not too far off uh, base, right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Doctor. Doc- 
Oh, thank you. D- Dr. Daniela Shuseed, it's, it's been a pleasure. Yes. And we're, I, obviously I'm going mine. to follow you and keep uh, pace of what's going on and, and hopefully we can have you back. But thank you so much, so much. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I had a great time and, um, you know, anytime I'd love to be back. All right. Take care. Thank you, you too.